0: grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we give you thanks for our eternal home. And so now we ask that we might understand how it is we are to live with thanksgiving in this world as your spirit speaks to us through your word. Amen. Our text this morning is Psalm 47, which as I mentioned earlier, is a psalm about, that focuses in on the kingdom of God in this world. Uh, it comes on the heels of Psalms 45 and 46 which are about God about Christ as our king. And in the Bible and in our uh, doctrine and in our doctrines, particularly in our Presbyterian doctrines in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms The doctrine of Christ as king is inevitably militaristic, martial in its tone. That we have a yearning for a settled kingdom and for a king who sits on his throne in peace. But that comes after the battle. Uh, Psalm 46 says he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. There is, There must first be war. There must first be a subduing of enemies. Christ as our King uh, subdues us to his own will, but then he defeats and conquers both his and our enemies. We long for that day, When Christ shall sit and rule, the question is, how do we live now in Christ's kingdom with that kingdom being established? And we ask what it will look like. What will it look like then at that last day? What will it look like in the time when all of Christ's enemies shall be defeated? And that is the answer, or that that is the answer to that, rather, is found in the description that we find in Psalm 47. So let's hear it now. Psalm 47, which I'll now read in its entirety. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Salam. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is a King of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as a people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God, he is highly exalted. What can we expect when Christ defeats all of His and our enemies? Very simply, we can expect for all the churches to be full. You see, beloved, because Christ is King, all peoples must be among His people. And therefore, all people are called to shout to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's kingdom conquers the people, as we'll see in verses 1 through 4. All peoples owe praise to the Lord. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He is king over all. He is king over all people. And therefore, all people Owe him praise. We particularly praise him because we belong to him in a unique way, but he is the creator and the maker of all things, and therefore everyone in the world, all of creation, is obliged to give him praise, to clap their hands. Now I'm going to interpret clapping of hands. Uh, in the same way that Presbyterians interpret Jesus' prayer that all the church shall be unified. And so people say, well, that's, if you can get away with saying, well, that's just spiritual, and we don't have to actually get along with each other, then that will be clapping my hands in my heart. Um, which is to say, yeah, I'm going to totally disobey that one. One time, as a Presbyterian pastor, I was caught tapping my finger on the pulpit, and I was accused of incipient Pentecostalism. Uh, but, but let me, so, so I'm not going to obey that command, but, but you, are, you, are, you are urged or clap your hands. We are supposed to be singing praise to our Lord, but not just us. It is to this king who reigns and who is good to all of his people and to all the peoples of the earth. There is an obligation here. It's not something that is just for those who are part of the church. It is something that all people are born with. All people are obliged by virtue of birth to give praise to the Lord, the God of all things, the maker of all things, their creator and their king. Accordingly, because all peoples owe praise to the Lord, accordingly, the Lord subdues people under his kingdom's feet. Verse three, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So, what is God's kingdom? The Psalms, of course, and these are this section at the beginning of book two of the Psalter, when I say the Psalter, I'm referring to the entire book of Psalms, the 150 Psalms, which is divided into five books by the ancients. The book two of the Psalter begins with these Psalms of the sons of Korah. And here they say, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Well, who is us. It's not just the sons of Korah, it is the nation, the people of Israel, God's particular people during that time, that kingdom. During the Old Testament period, his kingdom, his nation, his people was Israel. Now his people are the church. In the New Testament era in which we live, until we if it's A simple and and probably a little sloppy way of thinking of things, but it works, is that there's the Old Testament period, and there's a New Testament period, and we're in the New Testament period. It's one easy way to think of uh, church history. During the Old Testament period, when we read of the nations and the peoples, We, I'm sorry. When we think particularly of the nations, that word "nations" uh, can also be translated as "gentiles," and that's when you hear it that way. I think most of us then understand that that that's a way of referring to those who are outside of Israel, not just. Uh, other nation-states or, or other political organizations besides Israel, but in particular those who do not worship the true God, those who have other gods, uh, Baal or Asherah or Zeus or, or, or Jupiter or whatever else the, the, the pagans and the heathens believe in. In this instance, you see also in verse 3, peoples is put in parallel with, with nations. And so these are unbelieving peoples, the unbelieving, the heathen nations of the world, pagans and unbelievers. So during Old Testament times, it's very easy. Who are God's people? They're the Israelites, and then the nations, the pagans, are everybody else. During the New Testament period, it's also pretty easy actually to tell the difference between God's people and those who are not God's people, the na- now we don't call them nations. Uh, God's people are in the church and. The unbelievers are outside the church. That's the division. And so when we read here in Psalm 47, this discussion of, uh, or mention rather, he's not really discussing them, but you know what I mean, the discussion of of nations and peoples, we're thinking of those who are outside of God's people. So he subdued peoples under us. How does that happen? Well, we think of the Old Testament, think of the the record now of the Old Testament. Uh, The Lord subdued, the Canaanites in the Promised Land, as the people entered under the under the the, the rule and the, the both the political and the military rule of Joshua and conquered the Promised Land driving out the Canaanites. Uh, we can also think of the period was David uh, comes to the throne of Israel after Saul and really during his the beginning and, and throughout his reign was consolidating the power of Israel, securing its borders by defeating the nations surrounding Israel militarily. So putting them in a position where they, could, they were actually sort of under the influence of Israel. And so the Lord did that. The Lord gave his people peace and victory in that way. Now, during the New Testament period, how does God subdue the nations? It is through the advance of the gospel. It is as the gospel goes out into the world, the unbelievers in the nations, the unbelieving nations, if you will, come in to the church through the propagation of the gospel. And so as the Lord is subduing peoples under his kingdom's feet, we can also say, verse 4, that God's people are subduing the world. It is God's people through whom he subdues the world. It says, "...he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves." Us is the pride of Jacob. So, 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 so that's, that's how that sentence is constructed. It's, it's poetical, so it took me a second to figure this out. But it, but it says, he, he chose our heritage for us, or rather, he, or you could also say he chose his heritage for the pride of Jacob whom he loves. That is who we are. We are those people who have a heritage. What is that heritage? The heritage refers back to verse 3. The heritage is the nations, the peoples, Our heritage is the peoples of the world, an inheritance which God has given to us. As God is advancing his kingdom of grace, the kingdom of Satan is being destroyed. It's very simple. There are two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of grace, that's here. Everything else is the kingdom of Satan, And we think of these things, we think of war in in territorial terms, don't we? It's very hard to to wrap your head around it otherwise. Uh, but if you think about classically, that how do we know who's winning? The person who's winning has more territory, or the side that's winning has more territory. And so it's very difficult to think of war in, in terms that aren't strictly territorial. So you're gonna have to wrestle with this imagery as best you can. But as if you think of but think of Satan's kingdom as a kingdom of souls. Who does Satan rule over? Who serves the devil, whether they know it or not? Who serves the devil? It's everybody who does not bow the knee to our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the gospel goes out, what happens? People believe in Jesus Christ, and they are brought into the kingdom of grace, and therefore, the kingdom of Satan is destroyed. Soul by soul, inch by inch, foot by foot, mile by mile, if you will. And that is how, that is how then the Lord is now subduing the peoples under our feet. Not by, not then that we, in this militaristic sense that, that it may go to is like we make other people feel bad uh, for not being Christians, but rather that we demonst- rather that they become part of the church. I think this is really important. There's a a billboard that we drove past uh, coming back from from Florida on our vacation that's just stuck in my head because it was just so entirely wrong. And, And it said, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord, even Democrats. And I read that and I just... How do you begin? Like, where do I begin? Because it is the first part is true, but but the second part is the assumption, of course, that if you don't belong to one political party, then you must be against Jesus, and, and, and inferentially, then if you belong to the other political party, you must you must be confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, which is just wildly inaccurate. Speaking as somebody who has literally never voted for a winning presidential candidate in his entire life, uh, and, and 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 puts you know, and and, and I. Shoot, now I can't remember who said it it was an old, old, old comedian but, but the more you look at the two political parties the more you have to agree that the one is worse than the other I mean that's, that's my perspective and so I like to think that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, I don't know um, that's, that's my belief so, but, what's, but, but it's also the tone there, let's put aside the political error what's the tone of that message we're going to make them feel bad they're going to be sorry right that's the attitude. Those who are not on our team are going to feel bad about being on the other team. Yay, our team. Now, I think there's a place for that in college football, okay? So, so go for it, right? That's that, but that's why it's college football, and it's only during college football, or insert your favorite sports ball activity. Uh, but whatever it is, okay, fine, but that's not our attitude towards those who are outside of Christ and outside of the church. Our attitude towards them is, come on in. Not we're going to make you feel bad, we're going to make you feel good. We're going to make you feel as good as we feel about our Lord and Savior. That's the point, right? Is, that, is, it, is, is, that, is it as the peoples are subdued under us as we conquer the world the world becomes a part of the church and that is why the advance of the kingdom is the destru- the advance of the kingdom of grace is the destruction of the kingdom of satan the destruction of the kingdom of satan is the advance of the kingdom of grace the two go together they are inextricable and so the church is god's kingdom in this world and she is conquering the world God's kingdom conquers the peoples. And so it's so important for us then to understand and to appropriate the fact that the peoples are God's kingdom. Verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 8. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is a king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Verse 6. Why do we sing praises to God? We sing praises because He is our King. We confess now this side of glory in this world, what we will confess at the end. He is our King. He is our Lord because He is our Savior. That is our relationship to Him. And we have a particular obligation. Everyone in the world is obliged to declare praise to the living God. But you, as a Christian... Are, if you will, double obliged. Uh, It is is a sin. It is a sin for the heathen to worship um, Hera, Hera or Zeus or Demeter or whatever their pagan god is rather than the true god. It is a worse sin for you to sleep in on Sunday because you are named after Jesus Christ, you bear his name. So you have a much greater obligation to serve him, right? You are burdened by that. And so that's, now I, I say that as a, like you better not sleep in on Sundays, but, but, it's, but we ought to like lean into that. Like this is our obligation, but it's our privilege that we in particular have that duty because we have a particular relationship to God. And so that is why we sing praise to him because of what he's done for us. And and, and so now he is reigning, verse 8, he is reigning over the nations. He rules over the nations and the whole world, over all the peoples, even those who will not confess his name because of who he is. He is king over all the earth. Because, verse 7, he is king of all the earth. And so all the earth is obliged to sing praises to him with a psalm. And this is why. So so understand, we have a particular obligation, but God is reigning over all. All the peoples, and so they too, in fact, everybody accordingly must be added to the people of God to sing his praises because everybody is obliged. Everybody is obliged. Those who are Christians and those who are non Christians are obliged to sing God's praises. Everybody has to be added to his peoples. That's where, and that's where we hit out with verses eight and nine. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. As I said, that when we think in terms of military, when we think in terms of the military, or, or rather more specifically, when we think of war and battles, and when we think of nations, we, we it's, it's, it's almost impossible, at least for me and, and probably for most of us, to not think of territory and borders and demarcations and those sorts of things. And it is certainly true that God is king over territory. Right, the, the, Psalm 24, which we heard last week, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So, so all the plants and the rocks and the trees and the national borders and the, the, the fruited plain and the mountain's majesty, all that, all those things belong to God. But, but, when the Lord thinks of his kingdom, he is thinking particularly of persons, not dirt. He is thinking of persons, not dirt. I got nothing against dirt. Dirt's pretty good for growing stuff, and with, if you didn't grow stuff, we wouldn't have anything to eat. So, so, so that's good. But, but, but it's people in which the Lord is interested. It is people whom Jesus came to save. It is people over whom our Lord came to rule. And so the Lord is expanding his kingdom by bringing in... People, peoples and nations. And that's what we need to see in verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Do you understand the transformation that occurs in verse 9? The princes of the people, the leaders of the people who represent the people, and therefore the peoples themselves, the peoples are now no longer the nation's. They are the people of the God of Abraham. They are the people of the one true God. They are part of the people of Israel, the people of the church. Now this is exactly, exactly at the heart and at the very nature of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham, and that covenant, of course, is is sort of foundational and and the root of everything else that the Lord does in order to particularly save a people in the Bible. And as he announced that covenant, as he made this covenant, made this promise with Abraham in Genesis 12, this is what we read in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises to Abram that he will make him into a great nation, and in him all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And they'll be blessed, as Psalm 47 testifies, because they will become part of the nation of Abram. Uh, Abram, who's later named Abraham, and so that's why his name is changed to Abraham by God. And that is why Psalm 47 speaks of the God of Abraham, the God of this particular people. And this is what is picked up on then by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 12, verses 11 through 13. Uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry, I, I think I said Ephesians 12, and that was wrong, because there's only four books. Um, I'm sorry, only four chapters in Ephesians, but I said Genesis 12, But whatever. There's, I need to, Apparently, I need to use a bigger, larger, even larger font uh, than I have uh, in my notes. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God and the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, it's just all there in those, those verses, right? It just really packs it all... This entire sermon is packed into three verses, I, I feel, uh, right there. Everything that, that, that he's trying to get across in Psalm 47, the sons of Korah are saying in Psalm 47, Paul states so plainly there, is that you people, you people, were not born with a birthright. You were not born with the heritage of belonging to the nation of Israel, but now. But now you who are strangers, aliens, without hope and without God, now you have been brought near. Now you have been made part of the church, you have made part of the people of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what Psalm 47 is saying. What the sons of Korah are saying. is that the princes of the people, the peoples who are far off. It doesn't matter. You know, you think of the peoples who are far off. The Philistines. Weren't the Philistines like right on the border of Israel? Weren't they right there, even sometimes within the boundaries of Israel? Even they were far off. Because their hearts were alienated and estranged from God. They were far off. But now through the blood of Christ, peoples who were far off were brought in and made near. And so the church's unity. The unity of the church. Is not in language or culture or ethnicity or race. Um, I don't know. Everyone, everyone has a different experience. So you may not have have run into this, but but over the years of my life, I have run into repeatedly uh, ethnic churches, uh, and that's and it's not. And, and and you may you may like there's in, in, in older cities in the east. You've got your Polish Catholic neighborhood, and they are enemies, sworn enemies of the Italian Catholic neighborhood. Why? I do not know. Like, that's, don't you have the same Pope? Like, I mean, how can you, and if they can't get along, right, then it makes, then it, but as you have the same thing in Protestantism, uh, where, and it has a lot, in this country, of course, it has a lot to do with ways of immigration, where you've got your Swedish Baptists and your Swedish Lutherans and then you got your German Lutherans and, and I've I've actually I've literally had conversations with people who said, Well, you know how Swedish Baptists are. Like, no, I haven't the foggiest notion of how Swedish Baptists are, because that's just so weird. That there would be like more you mean there's more than one? Like you can actually use the plural term Swedish Baptist, but apparently you can. Like that's but and, and, and so I'm not trying to be mean. I get how history and ethnicity works and ways of immigration and this is America and all that good stuff, but foundationally and fundamentally, right, we've got to say that you cannot identify a church with any ethnicity or with any given language. Uh, Where we, we use English in this church, I hope. That's been clear throughout the sermon. Uh, that we, we speak in English because that's the common language around us, but that's not because the gospel comes only to English speakers or only English-speaking people can be in the church or only Americans can be Christians. That's just an accident of place and time. The unity of the church rather is in the one God whom we serve, our Lord Jesus Christ and his promises to his people. That's where we have to find unity. And it's why, even to go, to go back to that billboard, it was, it, I'll tell you, it was one of those moments when I was just driving like, I got a sermon an illustration, and I'm just going to get everything I can out of that thing. But to go back to that, right, what is that saying? It's saying that something other than church membership is the marker of, the true, of a true Christian. And that is just a falsehood. That is a lie from the devil. There is nothing, nothing other than loyalty to our Lord Jesus Christ, membership in the kingdom of grace in this world that makes you a Christian. And that is where we have to find our unity. Everything else is secondary. Literally everything else is secondary. And so, but one thing that we have to then see in verse 9, the princes of the peoples gather as a people of the gods of Abraham. One thing I want to say there is that while it is certainly true that the princes represent the peoples, it's also true that we're saying something about the great and mighty of this world, even the greatest of this world, even the most powerful of this world must submit to the rule of Jesus Christ. Everyone is called upon, is called rather to submit to him and to him. Everyone, everywhere, it doesn't matter who that person is, it doesn't matter how powerful that person is, it doesn't matter how bad that person is, it doesn't matter how good that person is, everyone is called upon to worship him because the church, which is God's kingdom, is all over the world and is filled with people from all over the world. And so that is to say then that God's kingdom conquers the peoples because The peoples are God's kingdom. And this is all because Christ is exalted. And I want to focus in more particularly on a a couple verses here from Psalm 47. In particular, verse 5 and 8. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And this calls back then, or looks forward to the work of our Lord. Because by His work, Jesus Christ purchased you to be a part of his kingdom. You need to see that. that, that that, that We need to see that in the salvation of souls, we have the building of the kingdom. We cannot separate those. Those Those are not separable concepts. They go together. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Here we are talking this, this brings us to the doctrine of Christ's ascension, which we don't often think about, but it's vitally important as part of what He has done. In Revelation five verses nine and 10, Revelation five verses nine and 10. of the work of Christ, we read that they sang a new song saying, "Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals." This is a, this is a song of praise to, to Christ for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people and nation from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth notice there the basic work of Jesus Christ is to ransom to save people from their sins by shedding his blood and washing away their sins by declaring them justified declaring them righteous in the sight of of God, in order to be a part of his kingdom. And that's the basic news of the gospel we're all familiar with, that the work of Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, was to suffer and die and to be raised for his people. But there is more to it than that. Of course, we know that after Jesus was crucified and raised, he ascended into heaven. Uh, Luke 24, verse 51. This is also in Acts chapter 1. It says, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He went up into heaven. And why did he go into heaven? He went into heaven, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the work of Jesus Christ, then, it is helpful... It is helpful to think of it in its full and completeness. It's the complete work of Jesus Christ. And this before the return is his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session. So, so those three, we always think death, burial, and resurrection, those are, those are essential, right? And, and, it's, and I'm not, you're not a heretic if that's what you've been focused on. In fact, that's, that's awesome. But we need to see more in order to understand what's going on with his kingdom, that when he ascended, he ascended into the heavenly realms to be seated, and that's what we call his session. And that, incidentally, is why we call the elders, when they meet together, as the session, because they're just sitting around. That's actually literally what goes on at session meetings. as they're sitting around, In the moment somebody stands up, like, "Okay, well, I guess we're done." Um, that's that, that's that's But no, that that's his session. Like, it, it really blew my mind when I learned that in seminary. Um, that's so so. That's his session. But that's that's we talk about his session because that's his enthronement. And if you want to say enthronement, maybe that's maybe that's a more certainly it's a zippier term than session. But that's the idea that as he's seated, he is ruling. He is enthroned in glory. And this is why, then, He is exalted as King over all the earth. Psalm 47 is looking towards Jesus Christ and His completed work. That, that is, He has is gone up with a shout in order to, verse 8, to reign over the nations, to sit on His holy throne. The picture And in verses 8 and 9, then is the king in his courtroom, and the people over whom he rules are coming to sit before him or to stand before him and to declare his praises, to acknowledge his reign and all that he has done for them. That's the picture in verses 8 and 9. And so he is exalted, not just as king over his church, but he is exalted as king over all the earth, over all the world. This rule is not just in the future. The work of Je- the rule of Jesus Christ, His enthronement, His rule over all things, is not just in the future. It is He rules now. Philippians two, Philippians two, verses nine through eleven. I'm just going to read part. The, that's part of a, much bro- of a broader section going through the complete work of Jesus Christ. But Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now Jesus exalted now he is in heaven. And that confession of Jesus Christ his Lord is not just future, it is present. We are in the process of every tongue being converted, of every voice being turned through the spread of the gospel to declare the praises of Jesus Christ. And so the victory to go back to what I, the verse I read earlier from Psalm 46, where he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Psalm 46, verse 9, to break the bow and shatter the spear. The victory over all the earth has begun now and is going on now. His victory, his victory is not measured this side of glory by people saying they are very, very sorry and feeling bad. It's rather... As those people testify, convert and testify to the name of Jesus Christ, it is a success of evangelism. It is as evangelism brings more into the church that we see the victory of God? It is not measured by land conquered, but rather by baptisms. Every baptism is a victory for the kingdom of God. Every baptism is a defeat for the devil. It is a snatching of a soul, if you will, from the kingdom of darkness and placing them into the kingdom of light. As souls have been saved, as people have been converted. That is how we measure the success and the victory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is why then, as believers... As Christians, as members of the church, we must be, you must be committed to the work of of the propagation of the gospel. Now that is to each person according to his or her gifts. And so I'm not one to say that everybody is obliged to go out and to give a gospel testimony to everybody they meet in every single circumstance, and you should feel very, very guilty if you haven't witnessed to five people today, uh, or whatever number that they told you. Uh, at, at the Bible camp when you were a kid. That's, that's, I think that's a, that, that can get very confusing about individual calling in life. But having said that, now I'm going to heap up the guilt because I am a Presbyterian minister, uh, that we need to think as believers in this militaristic sense, the, not the, the, the militaristic sense of hating the enemy, but the militaristic sense of saying there is a war going on I am a soldier in the army of the Lord, and I have to live on a wartime footing. Giving no ground to the evil one, but also recognizing that everybody around me who is outside of Christ is somebody who is being imprisoned, imprisoned by the enemy, imprisoned by the evil one. And it's to live in a way, then, that, that, that you are seeking to Help others come to the same realization that you have, to have that desire to show up at church on Sunday and to sing praises of the God who is King over all the earth. For me, the big question that, that I wrestle with all the time, that I ask myself and I ask other people all the time, is how come we're not inviting more people to services? Like just how come? What is going on that I'm not inviting people to church? And that's all I'm asking anybody to do. Invite people to church. Like, I'm not saying you've got to give them the four spiritual laws or however many spiritual laws they've come up with now or, or, or that you've got to memorize uh, this, this outline to give people the gospel, but just invite people to church. Because this is, this is where the good news is proclaimed. All, all you've got to do is get them in the church and they're going to hear the gospel. All you got to do is get them to, get them to church on Sunday, and they're going to see what, we were, what all people have been called upon to do, to sing praises to our King. And so I want us to wrestle with that. I want you to wrestle with that. What is going on, um, either with my congregation, or what is going on with me, that, that, that I'm not developing relationships with people that lead to a place where it would be normal to invite them to services. I don't know. Like, I can't speak for you. I can't speak for anybody else. I can only speak for myself. It's, but it's worth asking about. It's worth asking yourself those questions. Am I developing relationships with those who are outside of the church? What is the nature of those relationships? What do I want for those people? Do I love those people enough to invite them to services? And so, as you, and as you wrestle through that, then, as an, in, on an individual basis... Uh, then, then it's, also, it's also helpful to remember, and I think there's also, that, 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 as, that we need to be praying that the, that the foundation for all of this is prayer. The foundation for the work of the kingdom is prayer. To be praying to God that, one, He might help you to see the world the same way that He does in those militaristic terms, in the God's kingdom versus Satan's kingdom terms. That, 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 but then also that you are praying for the work of missionaries, you're praying for the advance of the Gospels, you're praying for the nations that, or the peoples rather, that have been unreached by the Gospel, that we must be praying and we must be giving to support missionary work at home and around the world. Because again, There is a war going on. The Lord is subduing the peoples underneath the feet of His people, the people of the God of Abraham. He is taking those peoples who are outside of the people of the God of Abraham and adding them to our number. And we participate in that. And so we need to see Psalm 47 for what it is. It is a declaration, it is a prophetic Old Testament declaration of the work of Jesus Christ, even though Christ's name is not mentioned here, this is really about Jesus. And I know that sometimes people get uncomfortable with that. Well, how can you say that something in the Old Testament that doesn't even talk about Jesus is explicitly about him? But we need to read the Bible the way that Jesus teaches us to read the Bible. And that's in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. This is where Jesus is on the road with the disciples to Emmaus, going to Emmaus, and uh, they and he explain, and so they don't realize that it's him. This is after his resurrection, uh, but he says to them as they're explaining, like we're just super confused about everything that's been going on. Jesus says to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory?" And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Every passage in the Bible is about Jesus. Every passage in the Bible is about Jesus. In Psalm 47 is in particular about his ascension and his session about his enthronement, his exaltation, and his enthronement and his rule over his peoples and over all the world. That is what this text is. It is a text that takes us from Psalm 45, 46, on the king to the nature, Psalm 47, of his kingdom. And we need to see that, we need to understand it, and we need to respond appropriately. Because while I've hit home the necessity of trying to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to those who have not yet heard it, and to bring those who are outside the church into the church. Let's not lose sight of what Psalm 47 gives as the basic work of those who belong to Jesus Christ. What is our response to be? Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout To God with loud songs of joy. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For the shields of the earth belong to God, He is highly exalted. Jesus Christ our Lord has ascended into glory and rules the world for your sake. Therefore, clap your hands, sing praises, and shout with joy to the Lord your God. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks then for your great work on our behalf, and we pray that as you have shown us the mercy of incorporating us, of bringing us into your kingdom, that we might live with a martial zeal to see the kingdom of grace advanced. But let us not lose sight, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, that we would not lose sight of our great privilege now which is with intelligence and with joy to sing praises to the name of our exalted Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen.